You are listening to As a Woman, Episode 16, Miscarriage and Loss. In this episode, learn about the reasons why miscarriages happen, what can be done when a woman has recurrent pregnancy loss. Listen to my own story about my miscarriages and why I believe breaking the stigma behind pregnancy loss is so important. You are not alone. Welcome to As a Woman, the podcast hosted by fertility physician, Dr. Natalie Crawford, to educate and empower women. Each week, learn about your health, your fertility, and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community, fostering collaboration over competition, while learning how to authentically find your voice and amplify others as a woman. Hi, friends. Welcome to Episode 16, Miscarriage and Loss. This subject is so hard. This subject really does impact everybody, and I'm a really big believer in that. You will hear about miscarriage being one in four. This is not one in four women. This is not one in four pregnancies. The number is actually higher on both of those. This is one in four clinical pregnancies will end in a miscarriage. And so what does this mean? For every four positive pregnancy tests out there, every four times somebody realizes they are pregnant, one of these pregnancies will result in a miscarriage. The actual incidence of miscarriage is much higher when we do studies and we look at pregnancies that are lost before you ever get to the time of detecting with a pregnancy test. So when we use more sensitive tests and women are testing earlier, we've actually seen in pregnancy loss really great studies that the incidence of loss overall is closer to 50%. So that's crazy high, you guys, but we'll just go back to one in four clinical pregnancies will result in a miscarriage. So if you're trying to get pregnant, you may have a miscarriage. If you're going to try to get pregnant at some time, you may have a miscarriage. If you are having friends who are trying to get pregnant, they are having miscarriages. Look around, and if nobody in your friend group or your work friends or your family is talking about having miscarriages, it's not because they're not happening. It's because they're not talking about them. And this is really one of the top complaints that I hear from my patients. There is no place to mourn, no place to suffer, nowhere to seek understanding and acceptance. Because we let miscarriage be so isolating, we don't talk about it, we don't share with our support systems, we don't have a way to get support, and we suffer alone. Women who have a miscarriage often feel a need to prove their strength. They're told that, well, at least it wasn't a real baby yet, or you weren't that far along, so this loss isn't so meaningful. All things that maybe are well-intended, but they leave the woman who is suffering from the miscarriage feeling as less than. And so I think it is very important that we talk about pregnancy loss and we talk about miscarriage. I think this happens to so many of us that there's no reason why we need to keep this inside and keep this a silent struggle anymore. When we don't talk about it, we don't understand it. We don't know why they are caused. We don't know what we could do that would make a difference. The truth is there's a lot of different things that can cause a miscarriage. 
It can be random, a random genetic event. It can be your age. It can be an immune disorder, an anatomic defect, a clotting disorder, an endocrine disease, or more. And here we are. You need to know what is normal so you can know what is not normal. You need to know when to ask for help and when can we, as your physicians, do something about it. You need to know how to improve your chances of having a successful pregnancy. And I also think it's really important that we start this off by saying, you have permission to feel. You really do. It's actually very important that you let yourself mourn a pregnancy loss. You let yourself feel it and you cry, scream, run, yell, whatever your thing is, You've got to feel the emotion because when we don't feel it, we let it brew inside of us and we get an internal anxiety and that will contribute to trauma in the future. And we don't want getting pregnant or being pregnant to be a traumatic event for us. So we have to accept that pregnancy loss is common. That does not mean that it's easy. It is very difficult. We are never prepared for it, but you are allowed to feel You are having, or you have had, or you will have a loss. This is a loss. It is a real loss. There are no qualifiers that it's not a real baby or it's not this or it's not that. This is real. I know that this loss hurts because you care. Because you are ready, you want to hold that baby in your arms. You want to grow your family. I know this is hard. This is so hard. I have been there. If you follow me on Instagram, you heard my story, and I'm going to share it here at the end of this, but it is hard. You need to open up to the people around you. You need to let your friends and family in, and I'm also going to tell you what you need to do. If you're a friend or family member, how do you handle this information? I don't know why there's such a stigma on something experienced by so many, But I really do believe if we talk about both our success and our failure to each other in work, life, fertility, whatever, we empower each other. We make each other stronger. We know that we are not alone. Others have gone through this too. They are on the other side of it and we can get there. We need to understand what is coming because the unknown is always scary. So let's start at the beginning. Why do miscarriages happen? So the risk of miscarriage increases with age. This is well-known and well-documented. And yes, there's nothing we can do about our age. It sucks. We get older. We are older. But we need to understand what our chances are at any given time period so that we can be prepared for what's going to come when we put ourselves out there or make changes or actions to try to mitigate the risk of a miscarriage. If you're less than 30 years old, the overall chance of miscarriage is about 15%. If you're between 30 to 34 years, it's about 20%. If you're between 35 to 39 years, it's about 30%. And if you're 40 years or older, the chance of miscarriage is about 40 to 50%. So you can see the chance of having a miscarriage as you get older increases. And this is not for some unknown reason. This is because our chromosomes are more likely to split unevenly as we age. There's a higher incidence of genetic abnormalities as we age. And really, overall, the number one cause of all miscarriages are random genetic 
events. 50 to 75, we actually think it's closer to 75% of all miscarriages are because of genetic abnormalities. And I always tell a woman or tell a patient, hey, this sucks. This is hard. But this is your body doing what it's supposed to do. Genetically abnormal babies should not continue all the time because you can only have so many pregnancies as a woman. We are not like other animals that can have many, many, many pregnancies over and over. You only have a finite reproductive period. You can only get pregnant and have birth so many times. And because of that, the body wants to make sure that you have the highest chance of it all working. So if the feedback is not right, if it's genetically abnormal, your body's not supposed to let it keep going. This most common cause of miscarriage is a chromosome number abnormality. This is called aneuploidy. That means you don't have the right number of chromosomes. You can have extra chromosomes. You can have missing chromosomes. You can have breaks in chromosomes that leave part of it as a deletion or a duplication. Regardless, it's just an abnormal number. This is the most common cause. This isn't something that you're going to have the same thing over and over again. This is not something's wrong with your genetics. It's random. And overall, the chance of having recurrent pregnancy losses, that's not that common. So if you've had one pregnancy loss in the past, your chance of having another pregnancy loss is usually between 20 to 25%. It's not like, oh my goodness, now you've lost one pregnancy, so you have a 60% chance or some astronomically high number of losing the next one. It's really not like that because the number one cause is something random, not something that's likely to happen again. And so let's say this, recurrent pregnancy loss, or RPL, as we like to call it in the fertility world, is when you have two or more pregnancy losses. And so we want to evaluate women who've lost two pregnancies so that we can make sure that we are not discovering one of the other causes. We really feel like all the other testing that we do accounts for like 15% of pregnancy losses. So I always tell women, hey, we're going to check a bunch of tests to see if you're going to fall in the 15%. But the truth is, the greatest odds is that you will not. And unless we did a DNC procedure or we have the chromosome sample from that pregnancy loss, we can't go on and know for sure if it really was genetically abnormal or not. And the reason why we see an increase in genetic abnormalities as we get older is that the meiotic spindle breaks down. And the easiest way to think about this is that imagine your chromosomes are lined up in a line in the middle of your cell or your egg, and they're being held apart by these proteins called meiotic spindles. If you remember mitosis, meiosis, all the different stages, these chromosomes are in metaphase. They're meeting in the middle, and they are stuck like that from the time you were born until you ovulate, until you ovulate. They are frozen, hanging out in the middle until you ovulate. And the reason why that is so important is that these proteins break down, and when you ovulate, those chromosomes go to separate. And so if you're younger, just like all the proteins in your whole body are super strong, your chromosomes are more likely to split evenly. Not 100%. Young patients still have random genetic abnormalities. It's still the number one cause of pregnancy loss. But as we get older, it becomes more prevalent because the chromosomes have an increased tendency to split abnormally because our proteins break down 
inside our eggs, just like they do in our whole body as we age. But this is what we mean when we talk about egg quality. I like to say, hey, we're just trying to get your proteins, get everything as strong as possible inside your eggs. And so when I'm recommending take these supplements, make these lifestyle changes, it's really important to know that we can't directly study egg quality. I don't have a blood marker for how good your eggs are. I don't have a blood marker or any test I can do to see how your eggs are functioning until I take them out of your body and try to fertilize them with sperm in the IVF lab. That is when I have a patient and I take her eggs and they are fertilized and the embryos do not grow as well. Something is abnormal in that process. That's when I can look at a patient and say, hey, this is an egg quality issue. And now we figured it out. But without doing all that, which is expensive and tedious and not part of the diagnostic algorithm for egg quality, we say, hey, egg quality is really important. We know that it's just naturally going to decrease as we age. And so we need to set ourselves up for lifestyle changes and success to try to have the highest chance of the best quality eggs we can. But because there's no perfect diagnostic test, there is no perfect study. I can't conclusively tell you in a randomized double-blind trial, this medication showed that your eggs will be 75% better. Nope, it doesn't exist. And so what do we recommend or what do I recommend to increase your egg quality? A healthy diet, so high in organic fruits and vegetables. We want to limit toxin exposure. So that's also going to include limiting meats and dairy products. We're going to want to limit processed foods, sugars. So you're going to want whole grains, lots of nuts, legumes, lots of fruits and vegetables. That should be the bulk of your diet. I'm not saying that a fish here or cheese here is going to be the end of the world, but you really don't want to be living on those simple carbs, those sugars, the processed food, the meat diet. That's not the healthiest diet for you. We also want to decrease environmental toxins by limiting plastics and microwaving and handling receipts. We want to be aware of the makeup and the products, the fragrance that we're putting on our body. We want to try to live the most toxin-free life. So no Teflon, cook with stainless steel, drink out of stainless steel or glass and not plastic. Don't heat up food in plastics. Don't put plastics in the dishwasher. I want you to limit your alcohol and your caffeine. So one to two alcoholic beverages per week, caffeine, less than one cup of coffee per day. So that's going to be less than 200 milligrams of caffeine in a single day. And be aware, not every cup is created equal. Places like Starbucks will tell you how much caffeine is in a shot of espresso versus a drip coffee. Espresso is usually 75 milligrams a shot and drip coffee is at least 200 milligrams. And then there are some vitamins and supplements you should and can be taking. One is a general prenatal vitamin. Two is I recommend methylated folate to these patients, usually at 800 micrograms a day. Three, a vitamin D supplement at at least 200 international units a day. Four, ubiquinol or CoQ10 at 200 milligrams twice a day and possibly DHEA at 25 milligrams a day depending on you and what your doctor recommends. And there are genetic abnormalities that you can carry in your chromosomes called balanced translocations that do cause you to have a much higher incidence of miscarriage. The easiest way to think about it is that you have all the chromosomes you're supposed to, 
but two of them have kind of swapped spots at a region. And so when they go to split, they split abnormally more frequently. And so the babies end up being non-balanced and they don't have all the chromosomes they need. Balanced translocations can be determined by checking a karyotype or checking your own chromosomes. And you'll often see that your doctor is recommending this. And if we find that you have this, we can treat it with IVF and do genetic testing specifically to look at the chromosome number and look at where that translocation is to see which of the embryos are normal and which of them are not. And this improves your success rates. Another cause or something we talk about a lot when it comes to pregnancy loss is something called luteal phase deficiency. And so I want women to remember And if you need a refresher, go back to the menstrual cycle episode. But the menstrual cycle is divided into two stages. The first is the follicular phase. That's when an egg is being recruited to grow inside a follicle. That's from day one of your cycle until you ovulate. And then you ovulate. And the second half of your phase is called the luteal phase. And so the luteal phase, this is when implantation occurs. And this phase is crucial for normal implantation and ongoing pregnancy. But I always say, maybe this is a terrible analogy, but I always say there could be a chicken and egg phenomenon between the luteal phase and and a pregnancy as far as what is to cause a pregnancy loss. There's all this talk about progesterone. I'm not dissing progesterone. Progesterone is an amazing hormone only made from the corpus luteum. That's where it's coming from. The only time it's being made is after you ovulate. The rest of the time, your body doesn't have any. And it is crucial. It controls the implantation window. It opens and it closes it. After a certain amount of days of exposure to progesterone, it is opened for a very short period of time and then it closes. Five to seven days, short little window. So if your body's not making enough progesterone, if you don't have enough progesterone, a pregnancy will not make it. We know this from good scientific studies. From studies that have shown that if a woman loses her corpus luteum, if you go and take it out with a surgery because she has an ovarian cyst and she happens to be early pregnant, she will miscarry if you don't give her progesterone supplementation. Progesterone is key. But an early pregnancy is what stimulates the corpus luteum to make progesterone. So if the pregnancy perhaps is not so good, if it is genetically abnormal, It may not send a strong enough signal to that corpus luteum in order to get progesterone to be secreted. And so this may be one way that an abnormal pregnancy communicates back to the body that this is not normal and we need to miscarry. Because if you check progesterone levels and they're lower, a woman is more likely to miscarry. It doesn't mean that the bad pregnancy can be saved by giving progesterone. However, we're always fearful of what if this woman has an innate progesterone deficiency? What if there's something in her body that is causing her to not make enough progesterone in the luteal phase, thus causing a luteal phase deficiency and predisposing her to pregnancy loss? We would hate to be missing those people because progesterone is easy and cheap with relatively few side effects. Not none, but relatively few. And so we don't want to miss those women. We actually, none of us, I mean, maybe some of us, but most of us don't recommend checking progesterone levels in the luteal phase when you're trying to get pregnant. There's no cutoff that's actually been determined to be associated with the luteal phase deficiency or not. So if your doctor is checking a 
day 21, so a mid-implantation progesterone, it's actually to see if you ovulated, confirm you actually ovulated when she thought that you did. And so that's the reason to test that. There's actually clinical signs of a luteal phase deficiency that make us suspicious. So if your luteal phase, if your tracking is short, or if you have spotting in the luteal phase, that's a clue that maybe something is not normal. Also, if your periods are happen to be irregular, there could be increased incidences that you're not having appropriate progesterone at the right time because your ovulatory pattern is off. Also, you need progesterone if you're doing fertility treatments. And that's because studies have shown that when we make you ovulate or you do IVF, outcomes are better with progesterone supplementation. All that is to be said I take a really good menstrual history, really try to understand if you're tracking your cycles, what's happening in what phase. Sometimes that's a clue to me that something's wrong, but it's not hard to treat with progesterone. So in the patient who's had pregnancy losses, often upon a positive pregnancy test, it's not hard to give them progesterone even if they didn't do fertility treatments. Other causes of pregnancy loss can include a congenital abnormality of the uterus. A lot of women don't realize the uterus is formed in two different pieces. It joins together and this midline septum reabsorbs. And there's a huge variation of the abnormalities that can exist. But one of the most common is called a uterine septum, and that's failure of reabsorption of that midline portion. And it's like an avascular piece dangling in the middle of the uterus. So when an embryo is coming out of the fallopian tube into the uterine cavity, it cannot help itself but be attracted to that piece. And 80% of pregnancies in women with uterine septums will result in miscarriage. Diagnosing a septum can be done with an x-ray dye test sometimes called an HSG, an ultrasound with water called a saline ultrasound, an MRI that's looking at the pelvis, or at surgery. Regardless, women who've lost pregnancies need their anatomy evaluated. A uterine septum is easy to fix. It's my favorite surgery. Hysteroscopy, camera goes in through the cervix. There's no incisions up above. Cut the septum out with little micro scissors. Ta-da, it's over. It's really rewarding. But the point is, this is a minimally invasive day surgery, and then your chance of miscarriage afterward once you've healed is back to normal, meaning whatever your age-related risk is. It's a remarkable intervention that drops you down right away. Other things that can be wrong with your anatomy can be scars in your fallopian tubes that are causing you to actually have tubal pregnancies. You can have scarring inside the uterus from prior infections or procedures. You can have uterine fibroids, which if they are inside the uterine cavity specifically or protruding into the inside, may contribute to miscarriage. And just like you've heard me say lots of times, you don't know if you don't look. We can't make decisions about things we don't know. So I'm not sitting here giving you the magic answer that surgery can cure everything, but we at least need to evaluate your anatomy so we know what we're dealing with. Another thing that kind of goes in the anatomic category is something called chronic endometritis, which is a chronic inflammation inside the uterus. We don't really know if this is associated with pregnancy loss or not, but you can test by either biopsying the uterus, so doing an endometrial biopsy, or sometimes we just empirically treat with antibiotics for a couple weeks just to clear it up in case that's what's going on. As I said, there's no conclusive data there, but it's something that we do consider. The other things we evaluate is a lot of blood work from your end, meaning we check for autoimmune diseases such as 
anaphospholipid antibody syndrome. I know that's a big word. It's a ton of big, long blood tests. Really what we're looking for is to see if you're having increased clotting in your blood vessels. And one of the most common signs is pregnancy loss. And so we check these different blood tests. And if you end up having them, then being on aspirin and a blood thinner like heparin or Lovenox can be helpful. So this is some blood work that we do. Another autoimmune disease that we check for is thyroid disease. And so looking at antibodies. So if you have got thyroid disease, even if your TSH, your blood values are normal, if we're not checking your thyroid antibodies, we may be missing an opportunity because studies have shown that with autoimmune thyroid disease, even with a normal TSH, supplementing with extra thyroid hormone as Synthroid has been helpful to decrease miscarriages. And other things like celiac disease, we want you to be on a gluten-free diet because if you're intaking gluten and you have celiac, then you have an increased chance to lose the pregnancy. In addition to the autoimmune, the anaphospholipid antibody syndrome, some women are also tested for a more extensive panel for just blood clotting disorders in general. These are inherited thrombophilias, big words that just mean passed along in your genes, such as factor V Leiden is one of the most common. If you have this, you're at risk for pregnancy loss, but you're also just at risk for blood clots in general. I tend to ask a family history, and if you have a personal or family history, evaluate all of these factors. I don't tend to do them all in every patient, but every provider is a little unique here. And we also talked about thyroid disease, but just endocrine issues in general. You need your thyroid hormones and your antibody screened. If your TSH is above 2.5, we're currently recommending treating it till it's less than that. So even if you're subclinical hypothyroid, meaning you're in the normal range for a normal person, if you're having miscarriage, pregnancy loss, infertility, trying to get pregnant, we want to make sure that we're titrating that more specifically so we can control everything that we can. Also diabetes, so I screen patients for diabetes to make sure that we're not missing something because miscarriage is increased with poor glycemic control. And women who have PCOS are at a higher risk of having a miscarriage also. This may be due to the insulin resistance. It's not really determined, but similarly, even if you're not truly diabetic, you're just insulin resistant with PCOS, I'm going to treat you with metformin to try to decrease this chance. And so that's a huge list of things that we can look for, knowing that most of the time we're not going to find a single etiology. Things that we can do include lifestyle changes, like I mentioned earlier, aspirin, so a baby aspirin a day, has not conclusively been shown to be helpful, but it's not shown to be harmful either. So many patients will go on a prophylactic baby aspirin every day and progesterone upon a positive pregnancy test. So some women, we do this whole evaluation, everything's normal. We say, go out there and just try. And with the next pregnancy, we'll do baby aspirin and we'll do progesterone. Some women, if we're getting older, we want to improve the efficiency of getting to that pregnancy. It may be with making you ovulate more than one egg at a time with the premise that, hey, if we increase the number of eggs you ovulate, we're increasing the chance that one of them will be genetically normal. And sometimes we consider doing IVF with genetic testing and screening of the embryos so we can increase the chance that we get that normal embryo. The basic workup from a specialist is not difficult. It's blood work for both you and your partner, some evaluation of your anatomy and a good menstrual history, and you should seek further help after you've had two miscarriages. 
but still knowing that the greatest odds is that you will be pregnant and it will be a normal pregnancy. And I'm ending this by telling you to be better than I was. My kids, so if you follow me on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD, you've seen pictures of my darling kids. Currently, they are four and three years old. They were pregnancies five and six for me. And guys, not even my mom knew I had that many miscarriages until she read it on Instagram. She knew I had lost some pregnancies, but she didn't know the details about it. Because I didn't share, I didn't feel comfortable sharing, and I fell into the same trap that so many other women did. I had three miscarriages, and then I had an ectopic pregnancy. I miscarried at work on labor and delivery. I had to stop in a bathroom on the way home once and buy tampons and bleed in the bathroom. And my fourth pregnancy, I had an ectopic pregnancy, which is a tubal pregnancy, and ended up getting a shot called methotrexate, which was terrible. My husband was at a bachelor party in Las Vegas. I was a first-year fellow, and I was, you know, getting treated at my place of work. And luckily, people there really rallied around me. And you can't survive an ectopic pregnancy on your own. You need intervention. You have to tell people. My family and my friends knew about that one. And they didn't really know about everything that happened ahead of time. And I fell into the trap. If I never told anyone I was pregnant, how was I going to then tell them I miscarried? It just felt too hard to call and say, hey, I had a miscarriage. I know I didn't tell you I was pregnant, but I actually lost that pregnancy and I'm not doing well about it. I didn't know how to do that. And I hear this from women all the time. And so I'm telling you this, there is power in sharing. It is natural to pull away from the friends who are getting pregnant and having baby showers and having babies because you're jealous a little bit. You're slightly resentful that it's not you. It is so hard. You don't know if it will ever happen for you. You feel alone and you feel scared and you are not alone. And yes, it is scary. And yes, it is hard. But if you open up to people, I promise they will be so gracious. You will be so surprised. And if you are the person that somebody opens up to, just remember what you say matters. Remember that there's a difference in sympathy and empathy saying, oh gosh, I'm so sorry for you, or at least it wasn't this, or oh, you'll get pregnant soon, or it'll be all in the past. Maybe those aren't the most helpful things, minus saying, I don't know what to say, but I'm here for you. I can't imagine how hard this would be, but I love you. I care about you so much. It hurts me to see you in so much hurt. I know how much you're struggling. Whatever you say, just imagine what it's like to be in their shoes. Acknowledge how brave they are and thank them for sharing with you. Thank you so much for feeling comfortable enough telling me that you're going through this. I can't imagine what it's like, but know that I love you and care about you. And we'll get through this together. That's a powerful statement. That is how you need to approach your friends. You don't sugarcoat this stuff. You don't make it sound like it'll all be fine later. At least it wasn't this. Thank goodness it wasn't that far along. At least it didn't do blah, blah, blah. It doesn't help. You get down to the same level, climb into the hole that they are in, and acknowledge how hard it is to be there in that space. And always remember this. Even if you don't know what to say, saying, 
I don't even know what to say, but I care about you or I love you. That's really meaningful, okay? So take care of the people in your life. Make your friendships the place where people can open up about these really hard things because they need you. And you should open up to the people in your life. Friends, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Please share the As A Woman podcast with your friends and send me any feedback. I've just been loving hearing from you all and the spread and the support you have for the As A Woman podcast is blowing my mind. A huge big thank you. Feel free to follow along on my Instagram at nataliecrawfordmd or check out the blog at nataliecrawfordmd.com. You can always send me questions, thoughts, or suggestions for more episodes. And join me next week for episode 17, Confident. Mm